Rusty Quill presents. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey. Everybody, it's your boy Tyler. Welcome to another episode of the West Side Fairy Tales Horror and Lit Club for April of 2020. Today, we're going to be talking about Session 9, Remains of the Day, and a bunch of other stuff before that. How are you guys? How are you guys doing? I hope you're good out there. Um, I know normally I, I say something to that regard, uh, or something to that degree every every time I, I do one of these, you know, I hope you guys are doing good out there. But this time it's 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 taken on a little bit of a a little bit of a little bit more meaning, I guess you would say. <laughs> Cause uh people aren't people are not doing okay out there right now. People are doing the opposite of okay. They're actually in serious, serious trouble <laughs> at the moment. And uh apparently things are only gonna be getting worse uh we still have another at least month in these quarantines that are we're all stuck in some people have longer because you know whatever their governing body is didn't take the necessary precautions and stuff uh you know and some people are just not going to be on the other side of this thing i know i've got some older folks that are listeners i hope you guys are all in good health uh and and continue to be continue to be in good health i don't really know what else to say I don't know what else to say. It's just crazy, 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 crazy. I was walking my dog. We got a dog, by the way. It's uh, things that have happened in Tyler's life uh, section of the Horn Lit Club. Uh, we got a dog. His name's Buck. He's a shepherd and something else mix. He's huge, huge dog. Biggest dog I've ever had. He's almost six feet when he stands up on his back feet. He weighs like 70 some odd pounds. He's, he actually probably weighs more, weighs more than 70 pounds now because when we got him, he had some sort of like intestinal disease, his giardia or something from being in the uh, pounds of long stay at the, uh, at the animal shelter. So he'd been in there for forever and wasn't feeling very good. I think he had like some mild depression. So even when we brought him back, he, uh, he wasn't eating very much. And now he's started to eat more. He's still not like 100% there, but uh, I think he's putting on some weight, which is good because he had some like exposed hip bones and all that. Not bad. He wasn't like a starving dog, you know. They were doing their best to take care of him, but if he's not sick and he's depressed, you know, you got to get him in a good mental state. But he's getting into a good mental state. But I, So we've been, we've been walking him because 
you know, it's quarantine. There's nothing else to do but walk him. And man, he is a nut job. <laughs> he's the craziest dog ever. He's really, really calm until like he decides not to be. And then all of a sudden, you know, I'm glad I'm 6'4". I weigh well over 250 pounds. I can keep a dog from going crazy. My fiance is about a buck 25. <laughs> you know what I mean? She's a tiny little lady. She's 5'4". And she just gets, I'm always worried that she's going to get like just pulled out of uh, just her arms just ripped out of her socket like in an old cartoon when that dog goes off. But uh, man, he is, he's a, he's a sweetheart. That's probably the best thing about my my life recently is we got a dog. I, uh, man, you know, so I'm I'm just trying to look on the bright side of things. I'm exhausted. I spend a lot of my time worrying, and <laughs> I don't know why. There's not much I can do. It's one thing I taught myself to do in the Marine Corps that I, I need to get back into, and that's not worrying about things that you can't, you don't have any control over. You know what I mean? Uh, because my ability to affect whatever's going to happen with coronavirus aside from you know the basic things that you can do be smart stay 6 feet away that all the all that stupid shit that's a good idea you can do that but you know i can't cure coronavirus i can't get the economy back going on my own and so there's no real reason to to worry about it. it's just like worrying about a meteorite destroying the world you know if it happens, it happens. But we've also had plenty of time to be sitting inside and watching stuff uh, and playing some stuff. I've been playing Doom Eternal. If you guys haven't checked out that, if you're if you're one of my fans that likes video games and you especially like fast paced shooter games, Doom Eternal is great, man. It's a it's an arena shooter, which is like a dead brand of things nowadays. Like it's actually like a good first person single player shooter which i feel like don't exist anymore everything is so multiplayer focused that it's hard to find a good single player shooter game which used to be my favorite types of games you know uh and this is an arena shooter so basically what happens is there's the the conceit of the over level right and then you basically just go inside the level while you're doing some sort of like basically things to break up the monotony of going from arena to arena you can like explore, you can try to find secrets, you can kind of like explore the get, get into the lore of the game. There's a lot of really really pretty levels in the game actually and a lot of really cool stuff to find. But uh in between that what what it really is is you're just going from arena to arena, which are like almost it, it it's sort of like a really really fast-paced puzzle that also involves like resource management, which it's great. If you like, if you like the type of game where you have to multitask and constantly like think about positioning and stuff like that, it's perfect. Basically once you're in the arena area, you're locked in and then different types of monsters routinely spawn and they keep coming at you and they keep coming at you. And there's, there's small type monsters, which you can kill real easily and then there's larger type monsters, and then eventually there's boss type monsters on top of that. And they have like big health bars and stuff like that. But what happens is you are constantly getting barraged by stuff. So you have to be setting things on fire in order to get armor tokens. So you, there's pickups. So you're refilling your armor, you're refilling your health, you're refilling your ammunition, and then you're also refilling like other things on top of actually killing these things. So 
if you weaken something enough that it flashes, you can get a glory kill on it, and then it turns into health. If you set the thing on fire and kill it, it turns into armor. If you set the thing on fire and glory kill it, it turns into armor and health. And if you set the thing on fire and, like, chainsaw it, you know, you get health and ammo. Chainsawing things gives you ammo. And so you're constantly running out of ammo because there's not that much, especially when I'm playing on hardcore. So it's this really fun, you know, you're dodging, you're running around, you're trying to be like, okay, I can, I can kind of hit this little enemy area. I'm far enough from, like, these large types that are going to take forever to get to me. And you're shooting around and using boosts, and it's extremely chaotic. But once you get a, a feel for it, it's, it's really, really addictive. And, and it's, like I said, it's a type of shooter that just doesn't exist anymore. You have these games, you know, that come out, and it's all these hyper-realistic military-style shooters, it feels like. Or just, like, you know, more Battle Royales, more Fortnites, more PUBGs. And the uh, experience of a first-person shooter game is kind of lost. Uh, Halo was kind of an arena shooter, honestly. Even though you could progress sometimes, it's still, you know, you went through an area and then you'd have your big spot where things would be getting dropped in and you'd fight there and then you'd move to the next spot and things would get dropped in and you'd fight there. It's it's a blast. Um, You know... There are sort of sections like that in, like, the new Modern Warfare game and stuff, but it just doesn't have that same feel. And a lot of it's just because, you know, human enemies are just so boring (laughs) to fight against. You know, just running out and then ducking behind something and pop, 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 pop. And, you know, cover systems and stuff. All All those things that kind of, like, popped up and transitioned the 90s style shooter into the 2000s style like cover aim down sights type shooters uh they they took a little bit out of the genre that i'm glad that doom like has the ability to bring back because i'm having so much fun playing this uh i really am (laughs) it's it's a blast and because of the because i'm playing it on stream and stuff i can watch it i can watch some of my highlights back and it's mind-boggling to me what the hell was even going through my mind when I'm doing half of the stuff that I'm doing in the game (laughs) it makes sense at the time but like once you're once you're moving slow again and you can actually like see all of the stuff that's going on you're it's you're like what the hell what the hell am I even doing right now this is wild but uh yeah man that's 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 doom eternal the other thing that I watched recently and I actually watched it last month and could have talked about it on that HLC but I completely forgot. And I'm so sad I did because it's one of it's possibly one of my favorite comedy movies ever now. And it's a, a 90s movie that is forgotten to existence called Soap Dish. <laughs> it is uh it's so 90s, it's painful, and I love it. I I there's a there's there's about to be, and I, I tell you this right now because it, we're rolling into 2020. Last decade, the, the, in the, the zero zero, the aughts, there was an overt fascination with the 1970s for whatever reason. 70s stuff came back. I guess it's like it's the 30-year difference. And all of this last decade has been 80s stuff, which I love anyway. I'm, I'm not that mad about it because I love retro wave music. I listen to Perturbator on purpose (laughs) perturbator i think that i'm saying that right i've never actually had to say that name out loud perturbator 
Yes, Perturbator. That is such a that's such a gross sounding name. <laughs> He's a French musician. He does a uh, vaporwave stuff. Uh, if you've ever played the just excellent uh, top down, um, I don't even know what to call it, uh, but it's Hotline Miami. The Hotline Miami games, which are extremely retro feeling and, and just amazing. Those are probably going to end up on a recommendation at some point in the future, too, because I consider those kind of actually to be horror games. After fashion, yeah, I, I would say that I, I could get away with a random horror recommendation for those, but not right now. Not, not in this episode. Um, but I listen to that guy on purpose, and I, I love that 80s aesthetic that is unreal. It is not a real it's not what the 80s were like. I was alive in the late 80s. I was born in 87. And so I got raised on all of the shit that we could afford from the 80s that my dad and mom liked. You know what I mean? So I was just inundated with shit from the 1980s for all my life. Hair metal. I wore 80s clothes because we were poor. And all I had was hand-me-downs from my million cousins. So we, 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 I wore hand-me-downs, clothes from the 80s. I, I know all of that stuff. And, like, then I went to the 90s, obviously, after that. And so I'm, I'm, I'm acutely aware of the 90s. And I've started to see this slight, slight uh, resurgence of, or not a resurgence, but just surge of 90s nostalgia recently. Um, some of it's okay. It's good. You know, we're seeing, like, a lot of 90s stuff come back that's being like remade or re-released like Rocco's modern life had a, a, a movie Invader Zim, I guess is actually early two thousands, but it's still like a nineties kid type thing. And they, they brought back Invader Zim for a, a quick movie jaunt last year. And then, you know, star Wars, there's other things too. I, I won't, I won't jump into it. Star Wars isn't nineties. Star Wars is nineties to me because that's when I watched it. <laughs> I know I I should, but I associate, I deeply associate Star Wars and uh, Indiana Jones with the 90s because that's all I was, all I watched. I had the VHS triple set of Star Wars, uh, the original trilogy, obviously, and the VHS triple set of the Indiana Jones movies. And I would watch them one after another. I used to think Steven Spielberg and George Lucas were like, the end-all, be-all of good directors. There could not be a better director than Steven Spielberg. Uh, which, you know, my family's sort of light viewing habits uh, kind of reinforced. You know, it's not like I was, in the 90s I wasn't watching a lot of, uh, you know, who's a good one? Kubrick. I wasn't watching any fucking Kubrick in the 1990s, actually. Uh, and I don't think my family really was either. Not a lot of Hitchcock in the Bell household. Um, but yeah, man, I, I guess, you know, the nineties really was, was Spielberg's thing, but I, I digress this, uh, we're about to start getting inundated. I feel like with nineties, nostalgia, nineties, flashback stuff. And, uh, I don't know how to feel about it. Don't know if I should feel about it. I am worried though. I don't, I don't think there's anyone that's young enough in, in my audience. I, I think most people that are listening are about my age or a little bit older. Um, there is no, there's nothing I miss about the nineties that much, but like I have not seen anybody nailing quote unquote, like nineties, the feel of it, 
in most stuff. Even the, there was a a show, a movie that came out called Mid Nineties. That's actually pretty good. Um, by Jonah Hill, I think I actually made it. That film is probably about as close as it gets, and even that felt a little overly nostalgic. You know what I mean? And I, 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 I just feel that coming. I, I was in the '90s, and I just never had any of the things that people associate with the 1990s. I remember not giving a shit that Princess Diana died. I, I actually was just like, I fucking hate this lady. Because no one will talk about anything else. And also, I was Catholic at the point. I was still going to Catholic school when she died. It was 97. And Mother Teresa died the same year. And I remember I was like, uh, we were kind of all being a little butthurt that everyone was talking about Princess Diana dying and not Mother Teresa. If I remember that correctly, that's, just, that's in my head. And then you had O.J. Simpson, the O.J. Simpson trial. That was a million years. He's back in the news by just being a weirdo on Twitter. I guess he's out of jail for the second time or... Third time, I, I can't remember. He keeps going back to jail for stealing shit and doing dumb stuff. Anything but murder can, can lands lands old fucking old white Bronco back in the back in the slammer. But what I was talking about is a soap dish, and soap dish is so nineties. It's it's got the feel, and it's from the nineteen nineties, and it's kind of just everything just in excess. Big shoulder pads like that, like the, the sort of that fade in from like the, the late 80s into the early 90s sort of fashion. All the women have shoulder pads. All the women have kind of kind of big hair. There's a bunch of jerry curls on people. And it's a movie about a soap opera, uh, uh, like literally about the filming of and making of soap opera and soap opera stars. And like they're they're getting followed around and people are, are videotaping them and taking camera or, you know, they got paparazzi following them, which is. I kind of remember that. I remember when people talked about soap operas on the news. Um, everyone has this like odd belief that the news was better at being the news like 10, 15 years ago than it really was. I, I don't understand it. <laughs> uh, it. It's odd to get to an age where I see nostalgia about things that I actually know about, you know. Um, I, I get like sixties nostalgia, uh, because I wasn't alive in the 1960s. Like, okay, fair. But you know, there's also some really good music and stuff, but now like nineties nostalgia is popping up. And I, I, I hear people like the news was really the news in the 1990s, but this is, this is what the nineties were like. As far as I remember people paying attention to the absolute stupidest shit. Everybody's, everybody's so just isolated from the actual difficulties of life. Like America was really on top of the world in the 1990s. We just like quote unquote beat the Russians, you know, in 89. And then the nineties started after that. And then the, I guess the AIDS epidemic was kind of dying down. There was, so there wasn't really like, it was still bad. Crack was sort of a thing, but it didn't reach outside the suburbs. And there's always, you know, just that sort of divide between the rich and the poor. And you like didn't focus on it. You didn't you like drugs were something that happened somewhere else unless they were happening by you. And it was just this big cottony blanket around basically the entirety of the middle class and all of the upper class that, uh, you know, it, these sort of stupid banal things could exist inside. And the uh, the story in Soap Dish is just so dumb and banal. I fucking love it. It's like just sleaze. I don't even know where I'm going with it, but you have to watch Soap Dish. 
Uh, Robert Downey Jr.'s in it. He's <laughs> just like a closeted uh, sort of dude. I, I might have spoiled a little bit of it, but he's he's just wonderful. He's the uh, manager or the producer, he, he, above director, below owner of the network, sort of uh, executive that's in charge of the uh, the soap opera. Uh, oh my God, Whoopi Goldberg is in it as the uh, writer of the soap opera. Elizabeth Shue is in it. Um, oh my God. And I cannot remember the name of the main character, but she's one of my favorite female actresses. Uh Let's see. Sally Field. Like, seriously, one of my favorite female actresses. She she does frustrated perfect, and that's basically what this show is. Uh, she's an aging uh, starlet in charge of, or that's the, uh, you know, the star, the head of the soap opera, and she's trying to be replaced by the lady that plays the, like, bitch of it. And... It's 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 just so corny and over the top and screwball. It's just it's so much fun. And you should absolutely check it out if you get a second. I, I honestly yeah, check out Soap Dish. I couldn't say I can't say anything more nice about it. Oh, I also watched the original Wicker Man last night. I watched that and I'm definitely going to do a full review on that movie soon. So I won't get into it too much. But that is one of the most <laughs> mind-blowing films I have ever seen in my life that's not, like, intentionally mind-blowing. But you will be like, what on earth is going on? I, I have, I've seen the Nicolas Cage version of The Wicker Man two or three times. It's one of my favorite movies. It's definitely top five of my Nicolas Cage, what, what are you doing, Nick? type films with uh i believe uh vampires kiss being number one very fairly firmly in number one i love nick cage movies to death my fiance fucking hates them but she she tolerates them for me oh man uh the the original wicker man is a british film uh filmed in scotland it has almost no connection whatsoever with the the remake. The remake is so different. I now understand. I've heard people talk about how uh how not alike those two films are and like that was the reason why they didn't like it is cuz people wanted to see a modernized take on The Wicker Man and <laughs> Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. The, the remake took the few things I could give two shits less about the original film and left out literally every good thing about it. Every good thing. But it is kind of fun to see, like, what the hack-ass filmmakers that made the Wicker Man remake, like, took away. Um, one of my favorite scenes in, in the Nick, Nicolas Cage remake is when he runs up dressed as a bear and punches a lady unconscious. It's a perfect moment. Not many moments in this life are perfect. That is. That is a perfect moment. And, oh, man, in, in the original, it is a, like, half a second scene. It's a part, it, it's literally like, nah, and it happens. You're like, oh, yeah, yeah, I would probably, I would probably do the same thing. 
to achieve the goals that this character is trying to achieve in this moment. As opposed to in the remake where they're like, hey, do you remember that scene in the original one where he just punches the shit out of a guy? <laughs> let's let's make sure we stick that in. But the original man, it has nudity. It's almost a musical. There are musical numbers sung in real time by the cast. There's like six or seven of them. And they're pretty decent and very, very weird. It is... uh strange man it's all hippie music like uh hard to hard to explain what i what i mean by hippie music like i don't i paul paul and mary or whatever the hell that band is it's you know that sort of like that kind of shit uh a lot of acoustic guitars a lot of cymbals some violins it's it's pretty wild there's a lot of nudity in it. There's a lot of sexuality and nudity in it, and it's completely unexpected. <laughs> I, had, I had no, I had no preconceptions of what I might be like about to see when I watch this, other than, and it's not even a spoiler. If you don't under, don't know that the Wicker Man he gets burned alive at the end, I, I can't help you. It's been fifty years. You should have seen the movie already, but. <laughs> you should. I feel like everybody's seen that scene where Nicolas Cage gets the bees in the face. None of that happens in the original. There, there is no like excessive amounts of cruelty happening at all. Uh, that that never occurs, which is for the best. Uh, <laughs> Nicolas Cage gets just mauled in the remake. Uh, he gets his legs broken. He gets a bees put on him. Um, I think something else happens to him too. I can't remember, but it, it's just, it's so excessive uh, and, and pointless too. And I think what they were trying to do is in the the original, the main character, there's a lot of, you feel that there has been a lot of cruelty done to this main character by the end of it, but it's all very psychological. It's, it, it's deceptions and uh, subversions and uh, trickery. And so by the time of the end, when you get to the end, he's like beaten. You're like, oh man, I feel so bad for this guy, this poor bastard. But in the remake, <laughs> I guess I guess they didn't have time for any of that, and so uh, they they just resorted to, you know, cruelty, just absolutely like just mauling him. And that's what those horror movies were like in that little brief bit of time. I, I think it's like hostile. When Hostel came out, all of the movies that were kind of in that vein all just tried to do that. You know, uh, brutality, really, really dark, really gruesome, nonsensical violence. And I guess I kind of enjoyed it for what it was. I would never rewatch Hostel. Uh, probably ever. Well, I, maybe I will just for, uh, for one of those reviews as a retrospective because I haven't seen that movie in years. But I do really remember not liking it. Uh, I thought it was, and, and I mean, this is me. At, like when I saw that movie, I I was either in graduating high school or or a, a young man in the Marine Corps, which was the edgiest I ever was. And even I was just like, this is fucking lame, <laughs> and the ending is stupid. But that was the uh, that was the era where it was just a lot of a lot of darkness, 
you know what I mean, and cruelty in, in the horror movies. And maybe that had something to do with the Iraq War and the the onset of uh, of the global war on terror era. You know, post nine eleven America, as they as they like to say, which as kind of a counterpoint to <laughs> soap dish, you have hostile. <laughs> I think I think as far as two movies go, those are the most perfect diametric opposites that could exist. Um, but yeah, that, that, those are the things that I've been watching. Wicker Man, definitely, definitely check that out if you get a second. If you're trying to find a comedy that will, honest to God, entertain the shit out of you and make you feel a little less bad during all of this that's going on, watch Soap Dish, man. It's amazing. It is, it's just perfect. It's, it's, it's a perfect comedy. I love it. Um, but yeah, those, the, the, that's the, that's the end of the, what have I, what have I been watching section. Which brings us to uh, the HLCs for April. This month's literature recommendation is Remains of the Day. That's uh, Kazuo Ishiguro's 1980 novel, 1989 novel. Uh, Kazuo Ishiguro, I think, well, I know he won the Man Booker Prize for fiction for this book. And eventually he ran, won the uh, Nobel Prize as well, the Nobel Prize in Literature. Um, which I feel like is easier to do if you live in Europe. <laughs> There, I I think that there is a, a strong aversion to ever handing out those to American authors, which I, I completely I completely agree. I've always I've always thought of the uh, the Nobel Prize in literature as being something. The Nobel Prize in anything is odd to me these days. Um, I liked I like Barack Obama as a president, right? But it was odd that he got the Nobel Prize. <laughs> The Nobel Peace Prize, like immediately after being elected president, um, while we were still engaged in a war and he was dropping bombs on kids in <laughs> in Pakistan. I guess I shouldn't be laughing about that, but I thought that was odd. And uh, the more the older I get, the more jaded I am about uh, award ceremonies because uh, you kind of start seeing behind behind the uh, curtain as you get older, especially when you work in the press. I was in the media for a while. and. Uh, looking into things like the Pulitzer, like the Pulitzer Prize for for uh, for news reporting and stuff is kind of gross. That's not something that you win because you're good. Like it, it just it just isn't. It's not something that is the uh, the the people that do these awards are not actually going out there and doing due diligence. They, they rarely have any real fingers out there in the world. You know what I mean? They're not, they're not going into small towns and reading all of the newspapers. You have to submit your stuff. It costs money to submit to the, uh, to the, Pul- to the Pulitzer Prize, to any- almost anything. I don't know where I'm going after this. Oh, Kazuo Ishiguro, <laughs> probably he absolutely deserves whatever prize he got for Remains of the Day. Uh, I think I talked a little bit about the plot of this in the episode. It is a pretty straightforward book. A lot of what I remember about it, and it's been, I, I'm, I'm getting to a point right now where I am running out of good recommendations unless I remember stuff. And some of the things I remember that I'm like, everyone should read that book. I haven't read in so long. I read this when I was, I think, a junior in college which was like 2012 
now that I like, I, I don't know where the fucking years went, but that was eight years ago now. And oh my, I, I can't remember all that much about like the, the specifics of the plot. Uh, but I do remember a lot of it is this dude kind of just remembering his life. And that's what I like the most about it is because he has all these ideas and these feelings about who he was, but they're not all necessarily true. And when he talks to other people that he knows, you know, their recollection of things isn't quite the same. So um, the, the overall plot, sorry, is about Stevens, an English butler who's dedicated his life to the loyal service of Lord Darlington. Just getting this off of Wikipedia real quick. And so, yeah, he, he, he worked for this dude who was a Nazi sympathizer, which was actually very popular back in, uh, back in the day in Britain amongst the, amongst the upper class. Uh, Europeans don't like Jews. That's, a, that's just like a weird super fact. Anti-Semitism is like just off the chains in, in Europe as a, as, a, as a sort of like generality I'm not saying that, you know, if you're a European, you're an anti-Semite, like it's a, it, it's an equivocation, but just the uh, presence of anti-Semitic thought and anti-Semitic like sympathies in Europe is, is crazy high. And I guess it's because Europeans really did invent modern anti-Semitism. It's kind of part and parcel. Um, from what I understand, what I remember about European history, actually, if you want to do a, a little a little go back, most of this is because uh, for huge chunks of European history, uh, especially modern European history, most of Europe was under the influence of the Holy Holy Roman Empire throughout Bohemia and stuff. So, um, the Roman Catholic Church, based out of Rome. Fingers go very far north, all the way up, you know, to uh, to Norway and Sweden, I believe, at the height of its power. So one of the biggest um, sins in Catholicism is usury or money lending. Now, money lending is fucking crucial. You have to have loans and and paybacks to to operate macro economies, micro economies, because there are few occupations where you can earn at the same time you create, if you get what I mean. So if you're a farmer, farming is, is crucial. If you want to get farming out of surf style, feudal farming, you have to have a, a loan set up because farmers have to be able to buy massive amounts of seed and stuff and and you you have to be able to take out big loans at the beginning and basically speculate on the possibility of you know if you have a bad crop and this and that so that you can pay pay back later and countries have to be able to borrow money you know it, these are these are things that if you're thinking in simplistic terms where you're only like well I don't need to borrow money to do stuff like yeah but other people do you know a house I will earn enough money to we the the mortgage that we're paying on the home that we own right now, technically the bank owns, is, you know, because why we while we will have, you know, the hundred and fifty thousand dollars or whatever that you need to pay off the loan over the course of your life, you don't have it immediately. So that's where loans and stuff coming by. The the laws against usury were because 
back before people started started putting laws in around what you can loan, how you can loan, what you can put up as as uh, um, capital against a loan. You know, people were just doing whatever the fuck they wanted. So they 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 would you would get interest that was like two hundred percent per day. Stupid shit. It, like mob loans, which are bad loans, you know what I mean? Extremely vicious interest points, things like that. And I think also just because of the lack of schooling, people didn't understand loans. People didn't people didn't know how to fucking add. You know what I mean? Like addition and subtraction were were not things. People couldn't read. And so the difficulty of explaining something that is to this day as complicated as a loan system and banking uh, was so, so difficult and insane that they're just like, you just can't do it. But because loaning and stuff and, and, and being able to have you know, lines of credit and things of that nature are, is so crucial. What they did was the bypass was that they would let non-Catholics that lived on Catholic land commit usury. So you had the, the basically the Ashkenazi Jews that were throughout Europe at the time. Um, they would turn to those communities for money lending. You know, uh, they would they would have them do banking and stuff, which also let them so that it, there was a very common practice of of pogroming Jewish communities that uh, they they didn't want to pay back too. So you know, it was in a pretty vicious para parasitic <laughs> relationship. Uh, between these 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 things, you know these these countries. Uh, I think one of them was Igor the Vicious. I, I feel like that's a or, or or Igor the Cruel. It was some king in Russia who basically uh, didn't want to pay back anything, and he got all of his people together and just burned down the town where the moneylenders lived. And you know that was a that was a common practice, and so. Uh, usury and a lot of the dirty practices that are actually f- completely necessary for a, a modern society to function were kind of naturally associated with with Jewish people. That's why you know greedy Jews and stuff became this sort of uh, psychic meme throughout all of humanity that exists now, and it's because the the Jewish people were basically like you know the only moneylenders and you're like you're if you're Jewish and you're not allowed to own land because you're a Jew and you're living in a Catholic country or, you know, a, a Protestant country in time, you can't own land. How do you build capital to do stuff so that you can actually have some sort of freedom? Like, Hey, banking, you know, money lending, things like that would let you do a lot of, ha- have a lot of, maneuverability and because you know you don't have to be there all the time you don't have to have land you can have a building or something or better yet once you have the money you can buy the land back so it was a pretty sensible thing for them to do but anti-semitic thought kind of just festers throughout europe to this day i'm not saying that it doesn't exist in america obviously we have our own fucking neo-nazis and problems but from what i understand uh Generally, Jewish people tend to really, really like America because as far as the sentiment goes, like you can just be Jewish here. It's it's, it's rare, rare for, uh, you know, synagogues and stuff to be targeted and 
and things like that. Whereas through through a lot of a lot of uh, Europe, apparently, it still happens. I, I hear about you know, especially in like France and stuff. Although I guess that's because of you know Muslim Jewish friction that sort of exists. It, it, it's there, but I digress. Uh, after the end of World War One, the English aristocracy was kind of fucked. <laughs> so, so uh, the English aristocracy had been living on borrowed time for a very for a very long moment. They, they basically, once upon a time, were feudal lords, and so they had lands. They basically had you know their tenants. They had tenancy things, and people would live on the land. They would work the land, and in in turn, you know, they would be allowed to live there and they would get a share of the food. The lords would also provide protection in the area. They would settle disputes. And when you don't have a better version of a system, it, it was the best system that they had. And so as Britain grew in power and esteem, these aristocracies grew too. And they sort of outgrew their ability to maintain what they had. So, you know, I, I don't know exactly how they got most of the money that they had in the uh, you know Victorian England, the 1800s and stuff. But a lot of it was from, you know, adventurism, investing, things like that, uh, easy money makers. But their actual like, you know, their home stuff, running farms and things like that kind of fell by the wayside and it became it, it transitioned from a, a business arrangement to like the weird super classist structures that they had as they moved into world war one, which kind of decimated, uh, Europe kind of, it it decimated Europe. You know, they lost tons of people immediately after that. They had the avian flu. And even before that, the aristocratic halls were sort of on a decline because, you know, they built up all these really nice things, but then, they they built that on a bubble, and then once the bubble shrank or outright collapsed, they no longer had the capital to maintain these huge houses and these sweeping properties that didn't make them any money. You know, they they didn't have corn and and pigs and stuff because they 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 wanted to divest from that and just look pretty. And so they looked pretty until they didn't look at all. So after the First World War, um, there was a lot of a lot of dislike. In the upper levels, and you know, because of the way that Britain works, they they have a thing called the House of Lords, which I don't know how exactly it works nowadays. But back in the day, you had the House of Lords and you had the House of Commons, and that's how Parliament exists. And the parliamentary system was basically, you know, like a, the, a precursor to like a more sane democratic system like the absolute bonkers one that they and we and everyone else in the modern world has today. But this one was even more crazy because basically once you were, if you were just born, you got to be in the house of Lords. Once you were the Lord, whatever of whatever, you know, so Duke Ellington of Ellingtonia, I'm, I'm, I'm talking shit. I know who Duke Ellington is, but you would, you would get a spot on that. And so these people were still accustomed to having some, some pretty good. They had power. But a lot of them didn't have finances anymore, and a lot of them were upset because they had to take out loans and stuff. And so when you know Hitler came along and he's like, the Jews are absorbing the wealth of Europe and taking it for themselves uh, because he didn't just start in Germany. He did, it, he did his thing in Germany, but as he was coming up, you know, he was trying to influence people 
abroad too. Henry Ford in America is a notorious example of pro-Hitler support. And in the case of this book, Lord Darlington was one of those supporters. If you're trying to understand kind of where this comes from, it's a very deep. And I actually looked into all of this because of this book that I read a million, million damn years ago. And so you had people like Lord Darlington who basically courted Hitler and, you know, Hitler's cronies and stuff. I don't think he actually had Adolf Hitler at his establishment. But, you know, there was a Nazi party in Britain. There were uh, outright Nazi sympathizers, even in the lead up to the war, that thought that if, you know, something happened, possibly they'd be able to seize power in Britain or even in America and stuff and uh, create a more favorable situation in the state for them under a fascist regime, which, you know, didn't happen, thankfully. And World War II was so bad, especially for, for Britain. You know, Britain hasn't gotten their shit kicked that fucking hard on their own turf in, I think, like a century or so. Not since the, you know, they were scrapping with the French and back in the day. And even then they won, you know. And so uh, you went from having this kind of, and there was also a, a very, the class is a big thing over there. And there was, you know, this feeling, you know, these working class people, they have to fight the wars. They have to do this. They have to do that. And these rich people were, were <laughs> kowtowing to the fucking the Germans and, you know, you did not want to be a German or a German sympathizer post-1945 <laughs> anywhere, anywhere in, 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 uh, in Europe, uh, even in Germany for at least a little while. And, you know, all that's behind us for the most part, country to country-wise. I don't, I don't hold uh, Hitler against modern Germans, and you shouldn't either. You know what I mean? It, it's it's re- it's a ridiculous thing to be mean to them about. Uh, and I think they, as a, as a country, they kick their own ass over it fairly, fairly often. So, but, you know, in, in Britain after that, a lot of those houses were already on the decline because of the post-World War One thing. Post-World War Two was just the second hit of the hammer. And so they were completely falling apart. And in the case of, remains of the day this is kind of a discussion of that you know and people didn't talk too much about it i guess from from what i understand it was kind of just like a a thing that happened or i don't i don't i'm sorry i'm i'm, I'm losing my ability to articulate this but basically this is the first like really really good book about what it's like to be kind of caught between that you know being a servant of a person for for your entire life and you know that person that you had such respect for and you know thought of as being better than you is actually now that the 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 systems of the day have continued on and turned into something new you find that you've actually you you're, you kind of were the tool of an idiot or something like that you know and, and it's it's odd and so things like dignity and and purpose are 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 very very much a part of this. And that, that's what I remember most about this novel is that feeling. It, it's a it's a good book. I, I don't forget whether books are good or bad. It's been a while. So, you know, there's not specific parts of it that I 
remember vividly uh, as I would if and, and could talk like exponentially about like, you know, I was talking about the movies that I'd seen just yesterday. But there's one part that I really liked, and it's uh, a story that a guy tells about one of the other butlers that he worked for. I think it's Stevens was talking about one of the butlers he worked for before he became a butler. You know, kind of you, you rise to that rank as you age. And uh, the the Lord, they were in India at one of his, you know, mansions or whatever during colonial, colonial India times. And the man woke up hearing an odd uh, odd sound in the middle of the night and walked into the, the dining room and there was a tiger underneath the table, like a Bengal tiger. And because he was such a, you know, prim and proper English butler, he didn't raise an alarm at all. He just calmly like walked to the, to the, the wall, got the shotgun and shot the tiger to death and then, you know, cleaned up the mess. And the, the Lord was like, what happened? He's like, Oh, there was a tiger. Uh, and it's that sort of stuff. And there's also the, uh, the much more sad, uh, plot, the subplot of Stevens meeting back up with the woman who is, was sort of in love with him. It, it's, it's not, it's really well done. I remember this part of it. Uh, the Miss Kenton is her name. And that's kind of the, the overarching sort of sub right, right, the right below the surface type plot. And uh, it's something that I think about and why it's part of the kind of theme for this month's recommendations is that not letting something grow so that you can do something else that's not even really that good for you, but that you think you should do at the time. In, In his case, Stevens put aside his possible feelings. He, he knew that Miss Kenton kind of had a, a, a sort of, you know, crush or, you know, a, 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 there was a possibility that they could become a, rela- a, a couple and have a relationship of some sort, but, you know, putting duty first and stuff. And by the end of the novel, he's an old man. She's married. And that book has forever closed. And he'll never know what the words inside of it could have been. You know, you only have your imagination about the the life you could have lived if you hadn't done all of this. And that's the sort of tragedy of the novel is spending a life engaged in noble but ultimately pointlessly selfless pursuits, you know. Is it is it is it good to be a great have been a great butler that everyone can say, you know, he was a great butler, but the man himself who is the butler is not all the way satisfied with his life because that's not what he wanted to be. And that's that's really why I like this story. It's it's part and parcel of a thing that I've always told myself. It was a, a almost a piece of advice that I got while I was in the Marine Corps that I kind of figured out for myself because of a interaction I had. I can't remember exactly what it was, but basically sometimes people will find out that you're good at something in the Marine Corps and then you'll have to do that, you know? So I, I think it was somebody else was doing it something. Well, we'll for, the, for the sake of making the story sound like a story, when you're in the Marines, if someone finds out that you can draw, you are now going to have to draw shit all the time. You are the fucking, you are, you are the pencil bitch until the day you die or go out of the unit. And so it, and there was stuff that happened. There'd be kids that volunteered. They're like, who here can draw? Which one of you recruits can draw? 
in fucking boot camp. And, you know, kid raised his hand. He's like, oh, I can draw. And then all of a sudden he has to draw everything. You know, people are going out on, you know, you're getting, you're getting your breaks and stuff. You get to do this, you get to do that. And then all of a sudden, but you are stuck being the draw bitch. So my thing was, and I remember somebody saying in a, in a situation like that, man, I wish I wasn't good at this. <laughs> and that put a thought in my head. Never, ever, ever practice doing something that you hate doing. Don't get good at shit that kills you. Don't ever practice or try to succeed at doing something that you hate because it will turn you into a fucking monster. I know everyone out there, everyone out there knows somebody that was extremely good at a job they hate and they made everyone around them, including themselves, fucking miserable. The The Marine Corps is full of examples of that. I would say, I would say something like 50% of all people that make it past the rank of sergeant actually secretly hate working in the Marines and are just laser focused on their retirement and they are fucking miserable to be around because all they want from everyone else is the same thing that they want from themselves. Just shut up, be extraordinarily competent at this thing that you hate and just suck it up, suck it up. We're here to be fucking miserable. Even though you don't, ha- it doesn't have to be like that. If you get into like other parts of the military, like I don't know, I know people that are in the air wing that actually fucking love their jobs, and I know people, uh, special forces people, fucking love their work because it's they actually wanted to do that, so they became really, really good at it, and then they're surrounded by other people. You can't be in special forces and fucking hate it because because eventually you're going to get outclassed by somebody that wants to be in special forces and absolutely loves it and just fucking just just strokes you out. There's probably examples still of people like that. But they're miserable to be around. And, you know, I it's it's something that I picked up on and I'm glad I picked up on it as a young man because I I like a challenge as a human being, I'm that kind of guy. I, I, I work out, I jog, I run, I try to learn new hobbies all the time just because I like to, I like to figure out the puzzles of life and increase my ability set by doing that. And if I hadn't figured out that one thing though, don't ever get good at something that you don't want to be doing. I would probably be fucking way wealthier and just a fucking misery machine <laughs> just just torturing other people with my existence uh because I'd probably get good at that too what do you do i break employees <laughs> um but yeah I, and i think uh, i think that's really that's what i took away from this book and it's why it fits the theme in regards to the move um of and, and and really kind of the theme of a lot of, I, I've been noticing this, of a lot of the West Side fairy tales, especially for this season, of, you know, don't, don't work yourself, don't overwork yourself, don't overwork yourself. I don't, there's nothing, don't overextend yourself for things that aren't going to make you happy, you know, I, and I know there's the understanding that you have to work for a living. I get that. And you do, you have to work for a living. You have to put in the hours, you have to do stuff so that you can earn your share of the resources. And there's a whole nother conversation about what your share should be. I know that, uh, 
we're not having in general as a society that we should be. But it, it, it is, you know, no matter what your basic political system is, everyone understands you need to be occupied. You have to be. And it's good to be occupied. I, I don't know anybody that is terminally unemployed that's a happy person. Um, even people I know that are fucking lazy as shit still love having a job because you have to have purpose. You know, it's not good to run into other people and they say, what do you do? And you say nothing. (laughs) That's the fucking worst. Even looking for a job is, is still better than just not having one. But on the flip side of that, you know, if you can, if you can do something and make a lot of money, but be miserable, or you can do something and not make that much money and be able to live with yourself and be happy. It's always worth it to do that. I know people that are massively successful that are fucking miserable all the time because they didn't really want to be a doctor. Re- honestly, because they really didn't want to be a lawyer. I know tons of miserable fucking lawyers, <laughs> miserable lawyers. Uh, they, a miserable lawyer talked me out of becoming a lawyer. That was actually what I went to school for. I was in what I call pre-law, which is basically just th- that's not a real thing that you can do at the university of Cincinnati, but I was just taking all the courses that would help me in law school, which is, you know, a lot of English, a lot of rhetoric, uh, logic courses, things like that. And I ended up talking to somebody, I think I can't even remember who it is, but they were just like, if you think you're going to be happy being a lawyer, like you're wrong. <laughs> Some people are, but if you're not, if, if, if you're not already doing law shit is basically, I think how it was explained to me, like you, if you're not, if the law itself is not so fascinating to you that you're like trying to suck, not like watching like lawyer shows on TV, but actually like keeping up with Supreme court decisions, uh, focusing on, on political talk about, you know, what laws are going to be put into place, how they're working, who's being affected by it, whether or not certain laws are legal. If you're not deep into that, then you shouldn't go into law because you'll be fucking miserable. Like if you don't like doing paperwork all the time, if you don't like putting in 20 hour days behind a, behind a screen, you know, doing this sort of stuff, it might not be for you. And I, I kind of like looked into it and I was like, I don't think it is. Although, ironically, I still put in huge hour days behind a screen, but I spend it writing my own stuff, and that works for me. And, you know, if this, uh, if this, if I've been talking too excessively about this, this is the kind of conversation that will come up in your head if you read this book. It is extraordinarily good. From a, from a surface entertainment perspective, if you're the kind of person that reads just because you want, like, a fun story, uh, this might not be for you, but, you know, this is a this is a book that definitely it, it sneak punches you. I remember that about it a lot is that I was reading it and it had me putting myself into all of these situations over and over again. It was that engrossing where I was thinking about myself being this person and, and you know having this same conversation that I'm having you with you guys right now that if I did something like this to myself, if I if I skipped out on relationships, if I if I uh, skipped out on my life and in service of a cause or an occupation that did not ultimately fulfill me or, or even really leaving, leave me with a sense that I accomplished something great, then, you know, what, what am I doing? 
And I think uh, is, that's that's what elevates this book from simply being a book, something like honestly, something like I write, uh, which is simple, a little bit more boiled down stories to an extraordinary work of art, which is what this is. Um, you know that that sort of creation of that conversation. I mean, I, I feel like I I've been talking about the net that this book exists inside of both both the subtext and the supertext so much because it just does that so well. All of my memories of this book are those conversations are are those uh, bits of research that I've done, and and that's why this is good. It's kind of hard to impress that on you because it's not something as simple as say Wicker Man, which is fun because it's got awkward nudity and the, the main character is just so so dry and, and and boring compared to this rich world that's around him that it's it's it's, it's uh those interactions are fun the interactions are are sort of not the entire flavor of this of this book of this work and it's that greater sense of self greater idea of of the subtext and the supertext and this this big woven net within which this this book sort of exists as a as a nexus point inside british culture that i think is what makes it so exceptional and uh, i feel like i've i've probably talked to, uh i've probably out talked this subject at this point so we're going to continue on but i will say i consider this a must read if you're younger check it out um but if you get into it and you think it's boring, especially if you're a younger person, set it down and come back a few years later and you might like it a little bit more, which is, I think, something that people should say more often. This book is something I could see somebody accidentally recommending to a teenager because it's, it's eminently readable. There's nothing that's going to that's gonna kick you out. You know, you're not going to get into it and you're going to be like, oh, these sentences are just too dense. I don't know what's going on. I can't, I can't read it. it it's it's eminently readable um i don't i don't remember getting caught up during it at all but if you're not at a level of emotional or social maturity you might not pick up on everything that's important about this because it would be alien if i if i read this book which i could have easily read when i was 13 i would not have gotten anything out of it uh i i think people say the same thing about uh the scarlet letter which is apparently I I feel like I I have to reread it because I've been bad mouthing the Scarlet Letter since I was in high school. But some people that I really 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 respect uh, literature wise are like that book is actually fucking amazing. Children should not be reading it, uh, not because not because it's it's too much for a child, but that a child doesn't have enough to appreciate it. I did not like Indian food when I was younger because I was a fucking child. I was an idiot. It looked not like the food I liked. Um, and so I skipped out on it. But when I got older and I tried it, I, I, I loved it, you know. And so I would say the same thing for this book. If you're, if you're a younger person and you pick it up and you don't necessarily enjoy if you don't understand it, if you don't get a feel for it, maybe take a little break from it and go back. And, and keep that in your mind for other books too, especially ones uh, – that have, you know, older characters and stuff, uh, things like Moby Dick, it might not be the kind of book that you should be reading at that point in your life. I think that there are very much points in your life for certain types of books. And this is definitely one that uh, landed, came into my lap at the most absolute perfect time. And I might, I might even be overgrading it because of that. But please, please do yourself a favor. Check out Remains of the Day, Kazuo Ishiguro. It's wonderful.
It really is. And uh, with that, we're going to move to the random horror recommendation of the episode, Session 9, the 2001 American psychological horror thriller directed by Brad Anderson, starring Peter Mulan as Gordon Fleming. I, uh, I love this film. This is like a forgotten gem to me. Uh, I believe I said that in the in the episode. Um, I stumbled on Session 9, I think on Netflix, when I was probably honestly right around the same time that I was reading uh, Remains of the Day. It was, it was definitely when I was in college. I turned it on because I like watching horror movies with my younger brother, who's 14 years younger than me. Um, and it it wasn't... I don't even think it was, I don't know if it was rated R or not. I think it might have been rated PG-13. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at the, uh, at the website right now. It doesn't, it doesn't say immediately. Uh, but it was, it was on and I, I wanted to watch a horror movie. My little brother watched it with me. I think he would have been 13 or 14 at the time. And it was just, uh, it was great. I didn't think it was going to be that good because it had that, it had that, vibe that mid 2000s vibe i don't know how to describe it but um there is just this aesthetic that is almost seven the movie seven um when that came out that that sort of feel of that movie is something that a lot of people try to imitate very unsuccessfully because they didn't get what was good about it. And it's this sort of like washed out. I mean, I'm I'm looking at the, uh, at the poster right now, which is perfectly fine, but it's got this, it has a very close to, uh, seven aesthetic. It's, you know, this kind of burnt out, washed out, dirty film. Uh, there's a, a, like a delay echo around the actual title session nine. And, there were a lot of films that came out around that time that had that same aesthetic and they were just not great. They're just dull or try hardy or, and you know, there's bad movies in every era and that sort of aesthetic and a bad movie makes them like next to unwatchable sometimes to me because there's a lot of like bad camera work and stuff. It's kind of like a Rob zombie film. Uh, is is in that sort of era uh and that's a bad mouth rob zombie if you're a fan of rob zombie movies more power to you i kind of i kind of like the uh three from hell series of movies the um house of a thousand corpses house of a thousand corpses is what i would consider a romp (laughs) it's it's kind of good um it's definitely fun if you're drinking Ameri- or the Devil's Rejects is actually, I think, pretty decent. I, I would grade that at about a, a six and a half overall. I think that's probably his best movie, actually. Uh, and then I haven't seen, I haven't seen the new one, but I've seen a lot of his other films to some degree. Uh, the Halloween remake, obviously, I, I, I saw that. I didn't mind that as much as everybody else hates that much more than I do. I thought it was just meh. But that sort of feel that in that that's in that movie, where there's a lot of like bad cuts like intentionally bad cuts in the film and you know shots from like there, there's a, a a thing if you if i describe it maybe you'll you'll recognize it even though I, i'm describing this uh audibly where you'll have the shot and then it'll hear like and there will be 
six or seven more versions of that shot in, in varying film qualities to kind of like increase the tension of it, which I, I think is what it's supposed to be doing, but it never works for me. I, I, I always thought of it as being kind of, kind of not even lazy, but almost like it's appealing to someone that doesn't exist <laughs> or, or someone that, 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 or, or, or trying to trying to evoke a feeling that is not the kind of feeling you want in an actual film. It's something that works really good for the intro of a WWE wrestler. <laughs> like, like, like if it's in Kane is coming out and he's about to, he's about to fight someone. He's, he's, I don't know, strapped with barbed wire to the front of a ambulance. I don't know if that's actually happened, but anyone that's anyone that's ever listened or watched wrestling is probably like, I, I get what you're going for. And they do the bunch of different shots from a bunch of different angles. Some of them are grainy. Some of them are actually like washed out or even have a double image split on them. And he's that shit. I thought this movie was going to be that shit. And it wasn't. And I'm so fucking happy uh, because it could have easily been uh, a worse director could have made this film and just been doing terrible, terrible detail shots on the ground the whole time. And, you know, a lot of, a lot of dumb stuff that I I don't know how to really articulate it, but it's, it's real bad horror movie things for forgettable, less than fun movies. I can't even think of examples, although I know a bunch of them existed at this time because they're not good enough to stick in my head. The fog, uh, the fog remake, that movie was terrible. And I think that had some of this kind of stuff in it. It might not have, I I might be completely talking out of my ass. And if that is the case, I am sorry, but, uh, session nine's beautiful, man. I think there, so if you don't know, uh, session nine is about a guy named Gordon he has a asbestos abatement crew. Um, if you don't know what asbestos abatement is, it, it's kind of almost finished nation, nationwide. Um, and I don't know if it's a, it's honestly, I don't know if it's a thing that exists for my, my European and Australian and Canadian listeners because America's America's ability to uh, catch up to modernization standards is not equivalent to people in other countries. <laughs> We're always a little bit behind the times. Uh, asbestos is a type of insulation. It's a fire insulation. It's very good fire insulation. And it will prevent fire from moving from one area to another. It's also just basic type of insulation. It's fireproof basic insulation. And so it used to be in everything. It's a blow-in type. Uh, there's blow-in type. There's there's packboard type. Um, but the problem with it is, is the synthetic fibers that it's made of when inhaled interact with the cells inside um, your lungs very badly Uh, and they stay in there from what I understand and it can cause mesothelioma which is a type of lung cancer and um, it'll just kill the fuck out of you and it's a bad death it's a long death Um, small amounts won't necessarily kill you uh, like immediately like it's not like you know, a sarin gas or something where, you know, a drop little guaranteed give you cancer, but being in a place with asbestos for a long time increases the overall asbestos load on you. And that can make you very sick. 
but also doing any sort of construction in that area can make you extremely sick much, much faster. So, you know, people that worked in houses and were doing refurbishments on old buildings back in the day before they knew that mesothelioma was a thing after, you know, cases started showing up, they would just do work and they'd they'd be doing asbestos removal by hand and breathing it in and it would get them it would get them sick and kill the shit out of them later in life. It takes a while for it to develop too. So that's why it was so bad is people were doing that for decades before they started to realize it was bad and then decades more while laws were passed. Asbestos stopped being used, but a lot of old buildings still have asbestos, just like the fucking barracks that we lived in when I was in the Marines. <laughs> I remember right when I was getting out, there was a uh, a thing where we all had to leave. We had to move out of a, a barracks that we were living in and go like halfway across the area. And everyone's like, why did they fucking kick us out of the barracks? Like a few months before we deploy, like that's, that's dumb as shit. And then some people went back over there and there was guys in hazmat suits, <laughs> plastic up everywhere, pulling out asbestos and dudes were taking pictures of it. And the guy's like, you can't take pictures of this. <laughs> they were like, eat shit. I'm a fucking infantry Marine. You couldn't stop me from doing it. So, uh, well, we don't know that they were removing asbestos, but I don't know what the fuck else they were doing in hazmat suits <laughs> in our fucking barracks room. Uh, but this guy, he uh, owns a asbestos abatement company. So basically what they do is they go in, they remove all the asbestos, they, they, they clean the area, and then they give it a, a bill of good health. Sometimes just so you can demolish the structure safely, which is, I know, crazy, right? But you don't want a giant cloud of asbestos coming up after you blow up a fucking building. It's very bad. And uh, so he, he takes it. He is kind of like a not okay person, but um, he takes the job. He owns this company and he does it on a super tight schedule. So yeah, he does it one week and his crew is a, a like a you know, crew of, of basic of dudes. It's a crew of people that if you are a blue collar person, you have worked with at least three, if not all of these motherfuckers at some time, uh, potheads, gamblers, a law school dropout, <laughs> which would be, which would basically be, that was me. Uh, if you, when I, when I worked at P, I was that guy. Uh, he's the, the bookie. Uh, if you, if you've seen our most or listened to our most recent story, uh, the move, He's that guy. And um, these dudes, uh, they go and work. And I won't go into the spoilers, but it's it, it it's not quite what you think, but it's fucking great. The one part of this movie that I can never not remember is the voice that plagues Gordon the whole time. And it's, do it, Gordy. Do it, Gordy. It's, it's so fucking unsettling. It gave my little brother, like, the the heebie-jeebies for months afterwards, and he would bring it up to me. Hey, man, you remember I watched that movie with you, and it was like, dude, Gordy, scared the hell out of me, man. My little brother's the best. <laughs> He's almost nothing like me. <laughs> He's a jock. But, uh, man, it's just, it's great. And it was filmed in the Danvers State, Ho- or Danvers Mental Asylum. How do you say that? Danver- Danvers State Mental Hospital in Danvers, Massachusetts um, is partially demolished a few years after the film was was made. And during the filming, you know, they just walked in there and all of the stuff that you see in the movie basically 
was already there. Uh, it's just, you know, like any, any one of these abandoned kind of hospital places that if no one's paid to empty it, the shit just stays there. And so they didn't have to do a lot of set dressing and stuff like that. And they could kind of just go in. Apparently they only filmed in a very small area, which kind of works anyway of the hospital because the rest of it was unsafe to be in because it, it was just an old abandoned building. And I'm, I'm, I would assume that those parts are the parts that were actually demolished afterward. Uh, the, the building is amazing. I remember the building. It's just got such a good feel to it. It's big. It's old. Uh, if you haven't seen the movie yet, it's like one of the, I don't know. I don't know enough about architecture. I feel bad about that, that I can't describe stylistically what the building are buildings are. Uh, it's not Gothic, but it's like, I don't know, almost colonial, big rectangular windows, pointy, pointy tops on it, a brick, brick and rusted metal, uh, yellowed tile everywhere dust dirt grime up the walls water stains it's fucking perfect man and it it's it echoes the sort of psychological decline of uh gordon and his crew as they get you know they work themselves to death trying to fulfill this job and quite literally in certain cases uh they 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 are just become part of that environment and i love that about this film uh the film wasn't very successful when it came out it's it made 1.6 million at the box office if i had to guess i i can't find a uh for some reason i can't find the the budget for the film but if i had to guess it was probably about 2 million maybe a million i think the most famous person that's in it is david caruso who's the guy from uh what is it nypd blue yeah and no, no, CSI Miami is where I know him from. That guy. Uh, but it, yeah, it's it's a real small, like cast. Not too small. Good enough that you you know you can lose a couple characters and it, before the before the mid movie climax and uh, still have plenty of characters left to go around. And I just I really love this movie. I would I absolutely think you should watch it. It it, it that it didn't get more attention when it came out or even even in recent years is kind of a travesty uh because it's it's kind of like great it's not perfect you know i won't i won't tell you that you know it's not i compare it to i I compare it to kubrick i i think it's a blue collar kubrick film i'm actually surprised when i looked online that other people have said the same thing it's got a shining vibe you know big house and stuff but it's it's definitely the blue collar version of that sort of thing and i i think for that reason alone it's definitely something that you should check out there's not too much more for me to discuss with the movie unless i want to go in deep into spoiler territory which i don't think is necessary uh when describing what makes this good or or bad in this case it's not always that's not always the situation so sometimes i will do spoilers sometimes i won't this is a case where i won't but uh yeah with that i think we're gonna wrap up the episode if this is your first time at the horror and lit club welcome i'm glad that you're here i hope that you enjoyed the episode i always end with the uh suffix not a preface a suffix is that what it is but basically if you disagree with me if you don't like what i have to say uh let me know hop in to our actual horror and lit club uh, group on Facebook. It's facebook.com slash Westside Fairy Tales Horror and Lit Club. You can just type it into the bar. It'll send you right there. 
and you know, pop in there. Tell me I'm wrong. Tell me if you if you didn't like these. Tell me if you did. Tell me if I wasn't giving something a fair shake. Did you think that the uh, <laughs> Wicker Man remake is actually one of the best movies ever? Or, 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 did I did I badmouth your boy Nick Cage? If that's the case, let me know. Hop in there. Hop in the comments. This is going to be on YouTube. If you're on YouTube, hey, check out some of the uh, reviews I started doing. People seem to like those. I'm doing random little sm- short. 15, 20 minutes, short for me, 15 or 20 minute uh, reviews on on the various horror movies that I watched during the week. Um, just put one out on Pet Cemetery was the first one. I just released one on uh, The Curse of La Llorona, which I think kind of got a bad rap. It's not that great of a movie, but watch the video if you want to learn a little bit more about that. Join us in two weeks for the Next story, I think it's two weeks uh, till the first Friday of May when hopefully the, the last month of quarantine for us all. Uh, join me in, in, in two months for that. Next story, which is called Dog Star. <laughs> to remember, even though I've been working on it nonstop. I'm actually so tired from working on that that I, uh, I can't remember the title of it. Join us for, for that story. It's the... A uh, 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 very long-ish story about a man who works on a space station orbiting a distant star in humankind's far-flung future, but an industrial accident while he's working changes things for him and launches him into a nightmare unlike anything he's ever experienced. Will he survive? Will he stay sane? Tune into Dog Star first Friday of May. Check it out. Um. Other than that, man, hit me up on social media at WS Fairy Tales. Email me, westsidefairytales at gmail.com. I'm always there. I love hearing from fans. If you check out any of these things and you like them, let me know. Hop on to Apple, go to Reddit, tell them Tyler sent you when you talk about the stuff. And that, that's pretty much it for me, man. Check out Dog Star in a couple weeks. Check out the YouTube channel. It's Westside Fairy Tales on YouTube. It's not hard to find. And uh, until then, until next time, as always, stay safe out there. Something's not quite right in the quiet mountain town of Targrady, West Virginia. Months after a local teen was lynched in the dead of a hot summer night, two men stand charged with murder in what the majority opinion considers to be an open and shut case. But Adelaide Stevenson, a young crime reporter from Charleston, is finding out the smallest cracks in the official narrative run far, far deeper than she could have ever expected. Join Adelaide and West by God as she navigates small-town secrets, the dubious ethics of her own profession, and the dark whispers of an ancient creature, known to some as the Witcham Woman, who prowls the shadowed hollers that lie between night and nightmare. Sent on overnight assignment to cover the start of the trial, Adelaide quickly realizes the story she's been told, and been telling, doesn't make sense. Cryptic assertions of a concrete alibi are emailed to her by the family of the accused. Nobody in town seems comfortable discussing the basic facts of the case, and the murder she's been writing about wasn't the only tragic death this summer. Adelaide extends her stay against the wishes of her editor, and her investigations take a complicated and dangerous turn as she discovers the true depths of the mysteries surrounding Targrady. The only real evidence from the night of the murder may lie in the hands of a notorious local crime family led by an enigmatic woman known as the Fetid Queen, 
Local authorities seemed to grow more hostile by the hour, and even Adelaide's own career might not survive this assignment. Featuring an eclectic cast of characters ranging from violent and horrifying to outlandish and fabulous, West by God is a must-read novel for anybody who enjoys Twin Peaks, Stephen King, and all the creepy places you find just off the path in the woods. It is the debut novel of Tyler Bell, a USMC infantry combat veteran, former crime and courts reporter for the Charleston Daily Mail, and creator of the award-winning West Side Fairy Tales horror and dark fiction podcast, due for release by Henlo Press in October of 2023. Learn more at westsidefairytales.com slash westbygod.